0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans.
3: Hello. Science meets art this month on Naked Oceans as we venture beneath the waves to meet artists whose work plays an important part in helping to protect the oceans. We chat with underwater sculptor Jason DeCarris-Taylor and find out how his artwork gets transformed into artificial reefs. And photojournalist Brian Skerry tells us how he takes pictures to portray both the beauty of the oceans and the problems they face as well. I'm Helen Scales and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello! We'll also find out about a man
1: who brought stunning images of underwater life to the masses before the invention of underwater cameras. And this month, we have a very weird and wonderful animal as our Critter of the
4: Month. What's so cool about them is that they actually farm their own bacteria in their gills. So that the animals just sit there and they farm off, they pick off the bacteria... And they have this really cool adaptation. We believe that they can see black body radiation.
1: Stay tuned to find out which marine expert that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at the naked scientist.com.
2: Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at naked com slash oceans.
3: Well, let's kick things off with some ocean news. Sarah, what have we got for us this month?
1: Well, actually, my story isn't ocean news as such. It's actually a freshwater story. I know it's not technically about the oceans, but the findings do have potential implications for both freshwater and marine systems. It's a paper published in Nature by Bradley Cardinale from the University of Michigan that suggests that biodiversity in aquatic ecosystems can help to buffer a system against increased nutrient input. Now, one of the major impacts of human activities on aquatic ecosystems is increased input of nutrients like nitrogen from runoff, from agriculture or by sewage contamination. This can cause problems like eutrophication and dead zones where there's too little oxygen in a body of water for species to survive. Well, what Bradley did was to take eight different species of algae and diatoms and introduce them to experimental streams where the heterogeneity of the environment, so things like water speed and levels of disturbance, could be manipulated. When the species were all able to occupy different niches, so each performed different functions within the ecosystem, the uptake of radioactively labelled nitrate was higher than when biodiversity was experimentally reduced. The unfortunate fact that Bradley does actually point out in the paper is that increased nutrient input to an aquatic system does actually reduce biodiversity, which given these results is actually even more worrying. So as biodiversity is lost, the ability of an ecosystem to deal with and sequester extra nutrients like nitrogen will decrease. And yes, this is a freshwater study, I know, but nutrient runoff in coastal areas is a major problem for marine species too. So possible future direction of research could be maybe to see
3: whether the same would be seen in a marine ecosystem. That seems like an obvious obvious thing to do, because like you say, um, so much of what we put into rivers ultimately ends up in the oceans too. Well, I've got some news that follows up from an item that we did in last month's Naked Oceans when we talked to John Bruno about blue carbon and the ability of coastal vegetation like salt marshes and seagrass and mangroves to lock up carbon and obviously help in the battle against climate change. Uh, Because there's a study that's just come out that shows just how good a job mangrove forests can do at storing carbon. They store much much more carbon than we previously thought and a lot of it is in the soil that surrounds mangroves and that's just packed full of rich organic matter. Well, a team of researchers based in Indonesia and the US published a study in Nature Geoscience that measures the amount of carbon stored in mangroves in 25 sites across a large tract of the Indo-Pacific, spanning Indonesia, Micronesia and Bangladesh. And that's a much bigger area than previous studies have looked at. Um, They estimate that um, up to 10% of the carbon dioxide emitted globally when forests are cut down comes from areas where mangroves have been cleared, even though that accounts for less than 1% of the total area of forests in the tropics. Now, you might imagine that you know, most of the carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere comes from burning fossil fuels, which is true. But second after that is the CO2 released from deforestation and changes in land use. And there's a big movement around the world called RED, which stands for Reduced Emissions from Avoided Deforestation and Forest Degradation. And the aim is basically to help stop cutting down forests by highlighting the important role that they play in slowing the rate of climate change. And it seems to me really like a no-brainer that we should stop cutting down mangroves. They provide these vital areas for young fish to grow up and the ones that we catch and eat later on. They protect coastlines and so you know they're playing an important role in protecting people from things like the impacts of sea level rise. So the role they play in locking up carbon dioxide really just adds to that argument. Um, and mangroves are disappearing fast. Um, we've already got rid of over half the world's mangroves in the last fifty years. We know we've cut them down to make into firewood and charcoal um, and to make way for fish and shrimp farms. So I'm afraid to say that yes, those prawns that you like to buy, you might like to buy in the supermarkets, um, may well have been grown um, in an area that used to be a mangrove and used to do a really good job of helping to lock up carbon dioxide and some of that went back into the atmosphere. So you know all these little links Um, back to the environment of things we do and things we eat that we should be thinking about I guess
1: and also like you said it protects coastal systems it also uh, I remember back in 2004 with the Asian tsunami there were some studies after that that showed that areas that had mangroves were less damaged by the by the waves so it's not just protecting against sea level rise but also natural disasters like that as well Well, you can find out more about this month's aquatic news stories and many more at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com
2: forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans
3: listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castor Perry and me Helen Scales. Now you may remember last year we went along to the Census of Marine Life conference and we chatted to Jesse Ossibel, the main man behind the census, who came up with the idea of tracking down as much marine life as possible. Well as well as all the science involved he told us about some of the creative inspirations that emerged from the project.
2: And artists donated pennants and made sculptures and paintings and all this stuff just kind of happened, uh, and I think it's because marine life is beautiful. I think beauty was the attractor.
3: And we absolutely agree with Jesse. And this month, Naked Oceans is all about the beauty of the oceans and the many way artists are helping to shake off the public perception of the dark, scary, monster-filled depths. Because one of the biggest problems when it comes to caring for the ocean realm is that it's out of sight and out of mind. It's really hard to care about something we don't know about. And for most people, most of the time, we don't get a chance to see ocean life for ourselves. While the art of underwater photography is helping to bridge that gap between people People and the oceans. Brian Scarry's pictures have appeared in National Geographic magazine since 1998 and he spent more than 10,000 hours taking pictures underwater. When he ventures beneath the waves with his camera, Brian searches not only for the most captivating images of aquatic life, but he also looks for ways of portraying the many problems facing the ocean realm today.
0: I've been diving for a little over 30 years and making pictures in the ocean for most of that time. And throughout most of my career, I have seen essentially what I would call celebratory pictures of the ocean, you know, some wonderful pictures that show the the majesty and and beauty in the ocean, but very little had been done along the lines of the problems in the ocean. So my work um, has had this. Somewhat of an evolution, uh, I guess, in my career, in the sense that I too want to make beautiful celebratory pictures, and in the early days, that's mostly what I did. But um, these days, I try to balance the the happy pictures with some of the other side of the story kind of pictures, the pictures that show some of the problems. I, I'd like to think that my images and my stories are helping people to get a better grasp of these sometimes complex issues that occur in the ocean.
3: And uh, you mentioned the complexity of the issues when, when it comes to, to problems in the oceans. There must be some things that are really difficult to actually find images to, to portray what's going on.
0: One of the first rather large stories that I proposed to National Geographic about issues in the ocean. It was a story that was published in 2007 about the global fish crisis, the problems of overfishing worldwide. And I had been researching and, and talking to the editors about this for the better part of two years. It was a difficult thing to sort of get your head around. It, it was something that we knew was happening. We had read a lot of scientific papers. There was a great paper that was published in the British journal Nature, you know, that had stated 90 percent of the big fish in the ocean have disappeared in the last 50 or 60 years. But to many, it it was a difficult thing to photograph. How do we somehow translate photojournalistically these things that have disappeared? So ultimately, over a bit of time, came up with a a four-tier plan. The first part of this story for me was about making pictures that would get readers to appreciate the animal. They may never warm up to a fish the way they do a polar bear or some fuzzy, cute, mammal on land, but at least they could appreciate it. And I wanted them to see these animals in a wildlife way. The second step was to to then show some of the horrific problems that are occurring, that, that the ways that fish are harvested and caught throughout the ocean, things like sharks and gill nets and, and bycatch uh, from shrimp trawlers and, and long lines with illegal fish being caught and, and, and these kinds of things. Another step was to to show how it's affecting humans places in West Africa that have lost their only source of protein because, you know, First World Nations have come in with factory trawlers and taken away all of their fish. And then the last step for the story to me was about hope. I mean, if, if it's all over, then what's the point? But, you know, showing at least some of the solutions, places where they're creating marine protected areas, you know, with less than a fraction of one percent of the world's oceans that have truly been protected from commercial fisheries, we need to do a better job of creating places where marine life can thrive. I think that, you know, my work helps to allow readers to digest this quickly and easily. They can see the photographs. You know, They might be sitting at a dentist's office or a doctor's office and they pick up the magazine and they see a photo that engages them and they want to read the caption and then hopefully read the story and learn a little bit more. So um, I'd like to think that those kinds of issues can be treated uh, photographically in a way that makes people learn more and want to know even more.
3: Is there any way that, that you've been able to gauge or, or get a feeling for how your images and your work is maybe helping to even change people's behavior in terms of the, the decisions they're making about about what they eat? Is Do you have any kind of way of tapping into that?
0: Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's not anything that I can quantitatively say, yes, I can give you these facts and figures, but I, I get a sense um, from a couple of different things and they're by no means scientific, but there's been some evidence that things have progressed. For example. After a story that I did on right whales a couple years ago, I did a story on the most endangered species of large whale in the world, the, the North Atlantic right whale and the Southern right whale. There had been legislation sort of languishing in Congress here in the U.S. to slow the speeds of shipping traffic coming into critical habitat for right whales, where moms and calves often uh, lived during certain parts of the year, and that legislation had never been passed. But after my story came out, according to the scientists who had been working on this for many years, um, the Congress did act and, and were able to pass this legislation. So I don't know if we can draw a direct result, but they seem to think it, it certainly helped. There was another example in the final days of the Bush administration here in the U.S. where uh, they enacted some marine protection for a number of places in the Pacific, a place called Kingman Reef and some other places, and I had just published a story in National Geographic about Cayman Reef showing its magnificence and how relatively pristine it was compared to many other coral reefs because of its remote location. You know, it certainly isn't just because of those stories, and I could never claim that nor would I want to, but I do think that the combination of great science along with those kinds of images can have an impact. The other thing is just, you know, talking to people and getting messages. I literally get dozens of messages every month and literally say, you know, I had no idea that for every pound of shrimp that I eat, there's six or 10 pounds of other animals that die in the process, you know, bycatch. They didn't know about that. And now they have changed their behavior. And I, I, you know, there's no way for me to measure that. But I'd certainly like to think that that's the approach, you know, that if we can work from the grassroots level up by educating and, and bringing awareness to people and from the you know political legislative level down that we have a chance.
3: Absolutely. And it seems to me that the idea of spending my time taking pictures of beautiful underwater life just sounds perfect. Um, what is the reality of, of being an underwater photographer?
0: Well, um, that is a big part of the reality is, is that it is wonderful. But like any job I suppose there are upsides and downsides and certainly the good outweigh the bad you know I mean some days the weather is just terrible and you sit for weeks waiting for the weather to to stop being windy or the visibility to clear up sometimes the animals don't show up you go to do a a story about tiger sharks and there's no tiger sharks there equipment sometimes breaks you know we're dealing with electronics that we take into salt water, and you know there's all these things that can go wrong and as I often tell people Your success, I suppose, in anything in life, but certainly in this business, Mm -hmm. will be determined by how well you overcome problems. And I don't want to appear like this is, you know, a terrible job because it's fantastic. I love what I do. I meet great researchers and boat drivers and dive guides and all these great people that I've learned so much from. And I get to make photographs, you know. I get to preserve an instant in the ocean. It's a moment in time, you know. You're trying to capture this this blend of of gesture and grace with an animal and light and motion all in a in a still frame and sometimes it works it all comes together and you get this this truly magical moment that's preserved forever
3: that was photojournalist Brian Scarry telling us a little bit about his work capturing the beauty and the problems of the oceans. And you can hear an extended version of that interview with Brian, including his thoughts on how the oceans have changed during his three decades of exploring, as well as some of the physical challenges that take place when you take a camera underwater. You can find all that at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials.
1: Well, there's definitely no doubt that modern-day underwater photographers like Brian are bringing back stunning images from the oceans that most people would otherwise never really have a chance to see, and that's got to help in boosting our compassion for ocean life. But what did we do before there were underwater cameras? Helen caught up with science writer Philip Ball to find out about a Victorian artist who brought the wonders of the underwater world to the masses. First
3: of all, Philip, just who was Ernst Haeckel and and what sort of things did he get up to?
5: Well, he was a a zoologist or biologist, or call it what you will, someone who was interested in natural history um, at the end of the 19th century. He was a professor of zoology at the University of Jena in Germany. Um, and there he was uh, one of the key promoters of Darwinism in Germany. So um, he, was, uh, he, he took Darwin's ideas and popularized them there, but he popularized them very much in his own way. It was a way that actually slightly baffled Charles Darwin. Um, he had an idea, I suppose, that all life um, is guided by organizational forces and principles. So it was quite an unorthodox kind of Darwinism.
3: And that sort of idea of shapes and patterns and organisation, that um, spilled over into this this book that he produced, Kunstformen der Natur, or Art Forms of Nature, um, which was this series of intricate drawings um, of, of living organisms, many of them from the sea.
5: Yes, well, this was a series that Heckel produced uh, between um, 1899 and 1904, and he was an extraordinarily good um, draftsman. Uh, so the, he did all the drawings himself, and some of them were of large objects, like uh, large creatures like fishes and birds and so forth, but a lot of them were microscopic creatures that he had found, uh, looking through the microscope, he'd found in seawater. And they were um, organisms with sort of exotic and unfamiliar names, uh, things called radiolarians and diatoms, coccolithophores and uh, dinoflagellates. And all of these they are essentially single-celled organisms. Some are plants, some are kinds of plankton, others are very primitive forms of animals called protozoa. And um, all of them build protective shells that have the most extraordinary shapes. Um, and this was what excited Heckle, because this seemed to uh, lend some support for his idea that uh, the world, that life really is permeated by these organizational forces that operate all the way from very primitive single-celled creatures all the way through to, to higher organisms. So he looked at countless um, examples of these these shapes in the microscope and, uh, and, and drew them in the most sort of elaborate way in this, this book, Art Forms in Nature, And uh, the the drawings that he made turned out to be very um, influential among uh, some artists and designers at that time. They just found a a huge amount of inspiration in these, these pictures.
3: Am I right that it's the, the Art Nouveau movement that, that sort of embraced uh, these, a lot of these shapes and patterns that, that Heckel came up with?
5: Yeah, well, they were, they're, they're very um, characteristic of what we now associate with, uh, with Art Nouveau. And uh, some, of the, um, some of the artists from that movement were inspired to make designs of things like furniture for, uh, that were based on, um, on some of the shapes of the radiolarians that Heckel had drawn.
3: Was he a huge hit at the time? I mean, did did lots of people go out and, and buy this book?
5: Yes, they did. Uh, well, certainly um, artists did. And you can see why when you look at the book. I mean, it is stunning. Uh, it's stunning, but also very weird. I mean, these, these, um, the, these uh, shapes that uh, were found in the exoskeletons of these tiny creatures were like nothing we'd seen before in the living world. In fact, when um, some of these creatures were first observed in the early 19th century, uh, when, when the, uh, the, the ones called coccolithophores were first observed, people weren't sure whether uh, what they were seeing were the products of, of living creatures or some kind of strange crystal because they have this very sort of orderly pattern to them but also extremely elaborate. They sort of seem to stand at this, uh, this juncture between the living and the non-living world. Um, now, they are, you know, purely, completely the, the product of, of living creatures, but they are, it also turns out that they are shaped by uh, the same sorts of forces that uh, can organize non-living systems, uh, things like bubble rafts and foams. So they're very, very unusual. It just seemed that, that artists at the time were completely captivated that things like this could exist in the world at such a tiny scale scale
3: And would you say um that that Heckle's work continues to have a legacy today do you know do, do people still look to his work for for inspiration or for for ideas I suppose
5: well, yes, they do. I mean, I think certainly for inspiration because, um, you know, whatever you make of Heckel, he was quite a controversial character. The the images that he, he's left us with, are, you know, are still as beautiful as ever, as striking as ever. One has to say that um, occasionally you, you suspect that actually Heckel was uh, slightly embellishing them, but certainly the way he arranged his pages was very decorative, you know, so this wasn't a straight scientific record. He was clearly trying to do something artistic with this too, and sometimes he probably Embellished the uh, the shapes that he saw um, to you know to make them more sort of regular and orderly. Um, but nevertheless, what his artworks did show us was that there does seem to exist at all levels in nature uh, some kind of pattern and form and symmetry. And it's really that that is inspiring in Heckel, and it was really that that inspired the the first thorough study of pattern and form in nature, which was made in nineteen seventeen by a Scottish zoologist called Darcy Wentworth Thompson, and um, Darcy Thompson included a lot of Heckel's illustrations in, in his great book which was called On Growth and Form.
1: Philip Ball there talking to Helen about the amazing artwork of Ernst Heckel. And if you want to find out more, Philip's written a book all about patterns in nature. You can find a link to that and some of Heckel's pictures on our webpage. That's the NakedScientist.com forward slash oceans.
2: Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientistscom slash oceans.
3: You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Caster-Perry, and this month we're talking art and the oceans. Now, from two artists whose work brings a snapshot of the underwater world into our everyday lives to another who creates art for a rather unusual gallery... Jason De Taylor makes works of art, many of them including casts made from real people, and to see them you need to get very wet, because they're all installed on the seabed.
6: First of all, I sort of uh, create artificial reefs, but uh, using sculptures, Um, and the main aim of them is really uh, not only an art project, but also conservation projects. All of the sculptures go on to create reefs which not only aggregate fish and promote corals, they also divert tourists away from natural reefs, and which leaves them time to uh, regenerate on their own accord. I hope to sort of use the sculptures as a a kind of way to symbolize us living in a sort of symbiotic relationship with nature, not just us always working against it. Just the image of a a, human figure, sort of an ingrained marine life, is sort of affording it a certain type of respect. So I really am sort of worried about the state of our oceans and and how they're changing so dramatically. Um, And I'm trying to use the work to, to highlight some of these issues.
3: So people visiting your work obviously have a very different perspective to visitors at a regular art gallery. The light changes, um, people can hover over your work or swim alongside it. Um, Do you see that as a challenge or as an opportunity?
6: Both, really. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely a new way to look at art. Um, There's there's so many different perspectives and it's such a a new world down there. Each visit is never quite the same. So I have people that go one day and it's... uh, um, overcast and stormy and, and the works take on a certain meaning and then they go another day and it's light and euphoric and it, it's a completely different experience so I actually think it, it adds to the work
3: How do you choose who you're going to um, uh, make these these sculptures out of and, and do you get a lot of volunteers it sounds like it's quite a messy business
6: Mainly with the the silent evolution, I was looking for sort of um, cross-sections of society. So I was aiming to get different people from different communities, from different ages, male and female, um, different age groups. Um, So I was constantly on the lookout for people just in sort of everyday lives. And if I saw someone that had sort of particular characteristics or, or, or fitted any of the profiles, then I'd approach them and ask them to see if they wanted to participate. Um, bring them down to my studio, and then it's a case of them getting undressed to their underwear, getting covered in Vaseline, and then applied with all these very messy materials, uh, alginate and plaster. Um, and it's quite a long process from there. We then make a, a plaster original, and then we make a silicone mold, and then um, finally it's a cement piece.
3: And uh, and how do people respond when they see themselves cast in cement? And and, and do any of them go and visit um, their own uh, sculpture installed on the seabed?
6: Um, yes, yes. Uh, a few people have gone to visit it. It's actually interesting because um, obviously people <laughs> change. Um, some of the children I've done are now sort of uh, much taller than, than they were a year ago. Um, one woman is pregnant. She's had her kid. Um, actually, one of the models died a few months ago, so so it really did sort of cover the whole circle of
3: life. And you talk about the people change, but, but your sculptures change too, don't they? And In a way, you're sort of giving them over to the sea and to sea life. Um, how does that feel? Um, it, does it feel like they're not yours anymore?
6: I personally find it the most exciting and dynamic part of the work. It's so unpredictable. And some of them, I went recently, and the, the hair of one of the sculptures has, has started growing this kind of curly algae, and I couldn't have ever predicted you know that that would colonize that particular part but it just looks so perfect in its spot. I almost feel some days that I'm cheating in in some way as a sculptor because I never actually finish the work it's sort of like a, another shift of artist comes along and and does the finishing touches.
3: And, and do you ever feel tempted to say oh no I don't want that bit there and do you ever feel like you want to interfere with what nature is doing to your work?
6: Sometimes sometimes um I've done a new piece which has a, a false lung inside it, and, and I'm trying to keep that lung clear so that air can be ex- exhaled out of the sculpture. So I'm actually trying to stop the growth in that part. actually very difficult to do. I did a piece last year which was um, called Man on Fire, and on that one I planted a particular species of uh, fire coral, and the aim was that he was going to turn completely yellow over time and look like he's on fire. Um, But what happened is is another algae is attached onto it and it's having a a little war with the fire coral. So I think I'm going to have to send some more fire coral troops in to to win that war for it to
3: complete its objective. Um, What sort of other creatures are are, um, colonising your work? What else are you seeing turning up?
6: Oh, there's massive little <laughs> relationships going on. Um, we have lots of lobsters that colonize underneath all the sort of gaps in the sculptures. Um, we have these very territorial fish called damselfish, and they claim like a little patch of the sculpture and they they rigorously defend it. So whenever I go there to take photographs, <laughs> these fish come and bite me on the hands because I'm invading their their area, um, which is interesting. The recent installation, which I just finished in Cancun as this sort of mass gathering of 400 people, Um, And it's actually designed that it creates all this sort of void area uh, beneath the people's feet and and that's just what fish love to sort of take refuge so it's been there six months now and I I went back last week and there's literally thousands of fish that have colonised already and it's it's really exciting to see. Um, and you can actually see the dynamics because predator species like the barracudas sort of hover around the top of it, and the and the big schools of fish sort of duck and weave in between the legs to to avoid being eaten. It's it's really fascinating.
3: On a sort of practical note, um, how do you make sure that your work doesn't get broken up and and swept away by currents? You've got the ocean to deal with. How how do you make your your sculptures last in that sense?
6: Um, I mean, that, that's probably the the number one biggest challenge is is uh, protecting the works, especially where I'm working at the moment in Cancun because it's so prone to hurricanes. A lot of research and a lot of design has gone into dealing with that. At the moment, um, all the sculptures are incredibly heavy. The recent ones of the Silent Evolution were put down in units and there were, there were five tons each unit. Um, and then those are actually drilled into the, the sea floor. Uh, working underwater, I can't use any metals. and Ninety percent of public sculpture uses metal, so um, it's been quite quite difficult finding alternatives.
3: Presumably, you can't use metals because that would just rust away.
6: Yes, yeah, yeah. They start rusting and degrading, and then the sculptures have to be there for a very long time to to establish slow growing hard corals. So it's vital that they you know they they remain intact.
3: What's next for your underwater work?
6: Um, I'm continuing in Mexico and I'm exploring a whole new series of pieces which are. Are going to be kinetic so they're going to be uh moving underwater with the currents but it's actually going to be using gorgonian fan coral there's a lot of it around here and it's quite often damaged by um, storms or strong weather so we find a lot of it sort of dislodged and we're using those dislodged pieces um to attach to the sculpture so it'll kind of have like wings that move underwater so it'll be very interesting to see how it works out
3: That was Jason DeCarey's Taylor giving us a lowdown on his underwater sculptures. And I really can't wait to see how those moving sculptures turn out. That just sounds crazy to me. Absolutely wonderful. Um, So do check out a link um, from our website to have a look at some of Jason's work. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Yeah, I've seen some of the pictures of his installations and there's there's something a little bit eerie about them. They're, They're very
1: powerful. So it'll be amazing to see how they change over the years as they get colonized and you get more fish around them. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. Well, time's nearly up for this episode of Naked Oceans, but first, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why.
4: I'm Tim Shank. I'm a biologist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and uh, if I had to be a critter in our ocean, I would be a deep sea animal for sure, and I would be one that lived at hydrothermal vents, and I think I would be um, a shrimp, actually. They don't live that long, I don't think. But the reality is, is these guys can move and they can move throughout the vent system. And what's so cool about them is that they actually farm their own bacteria in their gills. They they hover around the vent water and these microbes love their gills and the microbes grow. And then, so the animals just sit there and they farm off, they pick off the bacteria and they have this really cool adaptation. They don't have eyes like normal shrimp, okay? They've lost their eyes, they've lost their eye stalks. Instead. They have this plate that sits on the front of them where, where their eyes would normally be. And their eye has migrated back to on their backs. We believe that they can see with this little organ on their back that um, allows them to see black body radiation, the heat coming from the vents. We think they can image that and see it. So how cool would that be to fly around the deep sea? Looking for hot spots like that, looking for a dim glow of light that's a hydrothermal vent. You roll up to the vent, and you have a nice, cool bath of water, a nice, warm bath of water, and uh, and you can farm uh, microbes right there. I think that would be so cool to be one of those.
1: That was Tim Shank from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the U.S. with a fantastic little critter, the vent shrimp, that feeds off bacteria living in their gills, and they see not visible light but heat in the darkness of the deep sea. Very cool stuff. And you'll find lots more critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans.
3: Well, that's it for this month's artistic episode of Naked Oceans. A huge thank you to Brian Scarry, Jason DeCarris-Taylor, Philip Ball and Tim Shank. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. So keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans or send us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com and you'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
2: Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.